My name's Grant. If you're new here, uh, if this is your first time here this year, happy 2019, happy new year. I'm sure there are some of you sitting there that are like, okay, Grant, you guys have been talking about Alpha for over three months because we did start in October last year. And you're like, okay, we get it, we get it. Pray for Alpha, invite people, all these videos, we've got it. But the reality is we've got just over a week to go until this all starts. Our first groups are starting next Tuesday. So that means for all of us who've been saying, okay, we're going to invite that person or we really, we, we want to try with them just to see if they'd be interested in coming. Really, we don't have much more time. This is kind of our last week to reach out to someone or invite someone or send that message or make that phone call. And I just can't believe how quickly it's gone. And um, maybe just the thing to celebrate before we get into our message for today is that we ended last year with eight life groups as a church. And I really do want to honor all of the life group leaders who are part of this community because they are people who have people in their homes. They're preparing during the week. They're praying for people, caring for people, helping people grow in their faith, serving this church in an amazing way. But we kind of ended last year with eight life groups and now are starting Alpha with 15 Alpha groups, which is a really, really cool thing, which I think is so amazing because it means 15 homes, 15 opportunities, 15 spaces for new people to come in and kind of explore faith and Jesus and all of this stuff. So I think that'll be really cool. And I think one of the things I've been excited about is I've been personally praying for a while that we could start something onto Howard College campus and really just trusting that God would do something there. And we're starting a group onto Howard College in February, which I think is going to be really, really cool. We've got a few people who I think will be involved, but that's where I studied. That's one of the places where I really grew in my faith. So I love the thought of a bunch of people from that campus going there to learn actually could find the most important things in life, like the truest things about Jesus as students on that campus. But I do want to ask you, like that video says, who are you going to invite? Who are you going to invite? I think one of the stories I loved hearing this week, one of the people who's going to be leading one of the Alpha groups invited, well, she's got three people from her work coming to her Alpha group, but one of them just came up to her and said, I want to do an Alpha course, not knowing she was running one, not knowing anything about this. It was like the lowest hanging fruit of all time. She was just able to say, well, I'm actually doing one next week. Do, do you want to come to my one in my home? And this person was like, yes, it was perfect timing. I think probably for a lot of us, it's not going to be that easy when we invite people. They're not just going to fall into our lap like that. But I really do want to encourage you just to trust. Maybe God will do that. Maybe all of us are going to have an experience like that. But just to trust that God, actually, as we invite people and extend that invitation, that people would come. And I know it can be a little bit intimidating doing that, you know. It can be a little bit awkward speaking to people about Alpha or church or Jesus or something about something like that. But I wanted to ask you today if you think that extending that invite is worth the awkwardness, the potential of what God could do through that invitation. Is it worth the awkwardness of having that conversation and putting yourself out there? I don't know what the most awkward moment of your life is, I know some people have got things rushing through their minds now. Maybe some of you have got a lot of things going through your mind. But I remember when I was six, I don't know what your like most terrifying thoughts were, but when I was six, the thought of being seen naked by girls was like the worst thing I could imagine. You know, girls were gross, being naked was weird, and them seeing me naked was like the worst thing I could picture. And I had this moment as a six-year-old where my best mate at the time, Neil Doherty, opened the door on me while I was changing and exposed me to a few of our girl friends. And I dropped to the floor and I covered myself with a towel or a t-shirt or something, and I was mortified about this. This is like therapy for me now, getting this off my chest. But like today, for me, that's like not the end of the world. You know, it would be so awkward. I mean, 
I, I would hate that if that happened with any of you in the room today. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be able to look you in the eyes for a while. We'd have to have a really uncomfortable conversation. I'm so sorry. I didn't want this to happen. It would be really awkward and I wouldn't enjoy it. But it, it's not like that kind of six-year-old me level of terror or awkwardness or uncomfortableness. I think probably as we get older, some of those childish fears and, um, I don't know, things that embarrass us start to fade away, and we start to get more uncomfortable or awkward with social engagements, you know? We end up in these situations where we've got to speak to people that we don't necessarily click with or connect with, trying to make conversation. Sometimes that's awkward at work with these people, and we're trying to make these things happen, and sometimes it's just so embarrassing and so weird. And add to that, sometimes we have to have these uncomfortable conversations with people where we talk about hard things, and you're trying to do that in a a good way. can be really, really awkward. I was thinking through some of my most awkward adult conversations, and I remember as a 21-year-old having to resign from my first job. And I was working in an advertising agency. I was a junior copywriter. I got back from three weeks of holiday. And I remember where I parked. I remember walking to the front door. I remember going down the stairs. And I remember going into my boss, Alan's office. Steph and I worked together back then. And I remember having to resign. And I walked in. And Alan said to me, Grant, how was your holiday? You ready to hit this year running and work? And I said, I had a great holiday. Thanks, Alan. But I'd actually like to resign. (laughs) Caught him completely off guard. And then had to go to my second boss, Nick and resign from him too. It was a really tough morning, and I was walking down the stairs just thinking, rip the plaster off, Grant, just get it done. Just do it first, like straight away, just have this uncomfortable conversation, and then you've got it out of the way. Don't know if you've ever asked your boss for a raise or a promotion. That's also like a nerve-wracking thing, especially you think you deserve it, and it's time, but you go to them and you have this conversation, and you think, what if they don't agree with me? What if they don't think I'm worth that extra money? Or what if they don't want to give me this promotion? Or they don't think I can handle the work? You're putting yourself out there, and there's this huge fear of rejection if they say no. Or maybe I remember the conversation I had with Shell, where I embarrassingly finally got up the courage to say something, and I told her that I was smitten with her, and it really made her feel uncomfortable, and it was awkward, but it probably was the most important conversation of my life. And probably just over a year later, I remember going to Shell's dad, John, and saying, John, I'd love to take you and Kathy for lunch. And he said to me, that sounds great, Grant, just the four of us. And I said, no, just the three of us. And his eyes changed. He realized exactly what that lunch was about. And driving there with sweaty palms and a racing heart, knowing this is the only time in my life I'm going to have a conversation like this with Shell's parents or any parents, hopefully, where I'm asking for their blessing to marry their daughter. And about three quarters of the way through the meal, I finally plucked up the courage to say whatever I said. And again, it was awkward. It was uncomfortable. I was sweaty. They knew what was going on. But we had this conversation, which was one of the best and most important and life-changing conversations of my life. And I was thinking about the conversations of faith, like the God conversations I've had with people. Because some of those conversations are awkward as well. Some of them you just need to ease and you start it and it's fine, goes super well. Sometimes just the whole thing is awkward and uncomfortable the whole way through, you know. But with some of my friends, I've had these conversations sometimes over years, sharing a little bit about Jesus or answering some questions or whatever it is. And slowly over time, there's rapport that builds And there's those moments sometimes in relationships with people where actually you feel maybe this is the time. They're ready to cross the line of faith. It seems like they're ready to believe in Jesus, to repent of their sins and believe in him. And you kind of put yourself out there again. You kind of embrace the awkwardness and you ask if they would be ready to put their faith in Jesus and believe in him. And those moments of yes, 
where people have said, I want to start to follow Jesus. I mean, some of the most exhilarating and adrenaline-filled and joy-filled moments of my life, seeing people enter into a relationship with Jesus, their Savior. I think probably all of those conversations we grow through hugely. Those have all been maturing moments for me and important milestones in my life and life-changing moments for me and for other people too. And those conversations, as awkward and uncomfortable as they can be, are important for our lives to change and for us to go forward. And I want to encourage us to go kind of beyond awkward because all of those conversations are awkward. All of those conversations are uncomfortable. But if I didn't actually step up and have those conversations, then I'd still be working as a junior copywriter at an ad agency in Westville. Shell and I would not be married. We wouldn't be dating. This church wouldn't exist. And a number of my friends wouldn't know Jesus or be following him today. I think one of the things we need to think about is conversations can be so important and significant and powerful if they are had. And we almost need to decide Is it worth embracing the awkwardness to have this conversation because of the potential of what God could do in and through that? So with all of what I've said in mind, if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Mark chapter 2? It will come up on the screen behind me. But even beyond like an awkward conversation, we're going to look at a passage today with a really awkward entrance, a really awkward experience, a really awkward situation that happens in Jesus's ministry. And we're going to be introduced to these four men who decide that they will do whatever it takes to help bring their friend to Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic or a paralyzed man or a disabled man, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Reading this, there are some awkward and unusual and different stories in the Bible as we read through. And I think this is one of them. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, there's this report going out about Jesus. You know, he's been traveling all around towns, villages, cities. He's been preaching and teaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, doing all of this stuff. And now he's come back to Capernaum. And it's almost like as he arrives, it's like this holy gossip going on all around the town. Jesus is there and what Jesus has been doing. And you can understand it because this is a small town. There's not much going on. The thought of Jesus being there would have been really, really exciting for all of the people. So everywhere you go, if you're in the supermarket, if you're at a coffee shop, if you're having a beer somewhere, if you're at work, Jesus is being spoken about. And people are hearing these stories of who he is and what he's done. When I read something like this, I think I would love it if that was true of Durban too. Everywhere you went in the city, people talking about Jesus, talking about his message, talking about what he's done. But honestly, even this morning, I experienced this a little bit. I feel like in some ways that has been happening in our city a little bit over the last while. I think many of you would know the story from some form of social media or newspaper or a friend. But at Christmas time last year, there was a really terrible accident that happened in Durban North, just outside of Anthem Church. And some friends of ours, I know they're friends of some of yours, uh, Richard and Jackie Mungavin, uh, their little daughter Kiara was in a horrible car accident where she nearly died. It was a tragic, terrible car accident. And I mean, just from what Rich has told me, she was in a coma. 
She was struggling with heart issues. Her brain was severely damaged, but not brain dead. And the prognosis from the doctors was that if she survived, and it was a big if, if she survived, she would be in a vegetative, vegetative condition for the rest of her life. And for this beautiful family, it's actually Rich's birthday on Christmas Day. This was their biggest nightmare, you know, the thought that Christmas could be marred forever by the loss of their little girl. And people rallied around them as a family incredibly. They had over 300 people in the hospital there praying with them and worshiping God, worshiping him that he is a good God, even in the midst of their suffering and the hardship. So the hospital gave them the day ward as a place that they could turn into kind of like a prayer room. And people were there throughout the night praying and worshiping and asking God to do something in this little girl's situation. And miraculously, she didn't die. If you do want to be encouraged, you can look at Richard's Instagram posts or some blogs that Jackie has written that literally from when this happened, you can track through their moments of uncertainty about what is going on to see this miracle unfold. Because not only did this little girl not die, but the miracle is also that she has rapidly recovered. She has recovered so, so fast. Some of you would have seen this, but last week she started walking, she started talking. There was this beautiful video of her recognizing her dad, starting to rub his head because this was him. She didn't understand everything that was going on, but this was her dad in front of her. Maybe one of the cutest things was hearing this little 13-year-old Kiara say, Hello, President Ramaphosa, because her story was on the front page of News 24. And them as a family were wondering, does our president know what Jesus has done? the miracle that he has worked in this little girl's life. And yesterday, after three weeks, this family were able to celebrate Christmas for the first time and open their presents together. And this is a moment they didn't know if they would ever be able to have with their daughter again. It's an incredible miracle. But maybe even more than this, the commotion of what was going on in her life and in this hospital started to get around. You know, People heard that actually this girl had not died and that it seemed that a miracle was happening, that she was starting to recover so quickly. So in this prayer room filled with people, some patients from the hospital and some family members of patients were going sometimes in tears, just saying, please would you pray for my person? We've heard what Jesus has done for Kiara. Do you think maybe he could do the same for me or my family member or my loved one or my friend? And people started to come for prayer. And the story really has gone viral locally and nationally and internationally. We've seen friends online praying for this little girl and speaking about the situation. It really is amazing um, how many people have heard of it. Even You Magazine, even You Magazine came to interview the Mungavans to hear their story. And maybe my little story about how the report of Jesus has been going around the city is I think on Thursday or Friday, I was at uh, the coffee tree on Cowie Road with some people. And I was chatting to someone who knows I'm a pastor and knows I'm a Christian, and they are not. And we were looking through the Mercury, and there, as he opened it up on the front page of the Mercury, is the story of Kiara and what Jesus has done, this picture of the Mungavin family. And I just said to this person, do you know the story? It's a miracle. And this guy who we've kind of joked about Jesus in church before said, yeah, maybe you guys are right after all, hey? Amazing how the story of what Jesus has done is I guess being gossiped about all around our city. And just like in Capernaum back in the day, the news of the fame and deeds of Jesus is being spoken about in our city today. This is an incredible moment for our city and for the people in our lives. Jesus is still healing. Jesus is still a saving God. Jesus still does the things that we saw in the scriptures. And I really do want to encourage you to trust him for those things, but also to keep praying for this little girl. She's still got some operations ahead 
there's still like a long-term recovery ahead of her. And we want to pray that God would finish this work that he has begun in her life. In Capernaum, these things were being reported about Jesus. He was the hot gossip or the talk of the town. And this house where he was meeting in was full. I mean, I just want you to think about it. It is a hot and humid day today. Can you imagine that there was no standing room in this hall today? None of us could sit down. We're all kind of cramped around, and Jesus was here teaching. And there's people kind of out of the door, around the building, people by the windows sticking their heads and trying to hear, trying to see, trying to just get a glimpse of Jesus or like a moment with Jesus. And Mark says in verse 3 and 4, And they came, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could get, not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And I just love that phrase, and they came. This group of people who know this person who is in need, who can't walk, who could use a touch from Jesus, they come with this man being carried by four people in his bed, being brought all the way to Jesus. And I was thinking about this. I don't know what they were doing when they heard this report that Jesus is in town. But they come quickly and they pick up their friend's bed and they rush to get to this house because they want a moment with Jesus. And maybe they're running through the streets and they're shouting, get out of the way, get out of the way, get annoyed with people, maybe trip from time to time. But they're desperate to get to the house and desperate to get to Jesus before maybe he moves on or something like that. They finally get to this house and they're kind of red faced and out of breath and sweaty and tired and drained and all of these things. And they just see there are people everywhere. They've been single-minded. They've had this mission, get our friend to Jesus. But now it almost looks like it's not going to work, you know. There's people all around the house. The driveway is filled with people. What is it they're going to do? But this whole way through, they've believed. If they could just do the little thing, if they could just bring their friend to Jesus, they would trust God to do the rest, you know. They know that they can't heal their disabled friend. They know that they can't save him or forgive his sins. They know that they don't have what this person needs. But they believe and are convinced that if they can just bring their friend to Jesus, he can do the rest. He can work the miracle. He can do something in their friend's life. So you can imagine the disappointment when they get there, out of breath, red-faced, tired, their arms aching from carrying their friend all the way to the town. And there's no ways they're going to be able to get anywhere near Jesus. And they probably think, we've wasted our time. Our friend's not going to get his healing. This is not going to happen. And so one of the friends, maybe scratching his chin, looks up and sees the roof. And he thinks to himself, no, there is a way. And you can imagine him almost saying to the other three guys, okay, guys, you've just got to trust me in this. Like, I know we haven't done something like this before, but what if we go on the roof and we let our friend down? I reckon he really had to convince them of this. It probably would have taken a little bit of time, but they decide they're going to go with it. You can imagine Jesus in this room filled with people. It's hot, it's sweaty, probably because of the authority that he spoke with and that he was speaking these words of eternal life. It would have been like so quiet, people hanging on his every word. You could hear a pin drop. This was like an electrifying moment as people were just drinking in and taking everything they could from Jesus, his every word being meaningful and powerful. And then almost in this moment, as everyone is focused in on him and just in awe of the things that he is saying, It's like these little brown flecks are falling everywhere. And people are starting to think to themselves, is this the glory of God? (laughs) Is this, are we being taken up to heaven? Like what is going on in this room? And then they start to become a little bit more like brown snow falling in the room. And then there's this thud, thud, thud on the roof. And they're kind of all awoken out of their mesmerization at Jesus. 
thud, thud, thud on the roof as more clay starts to fall and wood and leaves and mud and dirt and all of this stuff. And suddenly there's a breakthrough through the roof, this hole in the roof and this dust cloud. And no one really knows what is going on, but people are covered in dirt and wood because a roof like this would have been made of wooden crossbars and it would have had sticks and leaves all around and then it would have been sealed with mud or clay at that time. You can imagine people screaming and shouting, confused, not sure what's going on, furious that they're dirty. You can imagine the homeowner losing his mind. What is going on in my house? And they look up, and there's four little faces and four sets of eyes looking down. What an awkward moment. (laughs) What an embarrassing moment. Everyone can see you, and everyone is cross at you for breaking the roof. And when the dust starts to settle, these four little faces looking in, one of them gets up the courage to say, we're so sorry, everyone, but this is an emergency. Jesus, please, can you heal our friend? The approach of these four was whatever it takes. We don't care. Whatever it takes, we will do whatever it takes to help our friend come to Jesus. And they push beyond the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness and whatever else was going on in their heart because they know that it is worth it to get their friend to him. I'm pretty sure they were pretty exhausted at that time. Just think of the cost to them because they don't benefit from this at all. You know, They don't get anything out of this. Maybe they lose their reputation because of this. You can imagine almost the people in town for years teasing them as like the roof-breaking crew. You know, That's what they would be known as. And almost they could be teased for years because Jeff was so cross at them for breaking down their roof. And Jeff's wife was furious for ruining her antiques and the dirt on the expensive carpet that ruined it forever. And did you see that stick that fell on Mabel's cat? That cat never walked the same after the whole roof situation. And they would be teased for years. At least my friends would tease me like that for years afterwards. So their reputations could have been lost. Think about like how they gave up time. They just said, actually, God, we're going to trust you. We're going to make ourselves available to you and to this friend, believing that you could do something. We're going to give up our time. I mean, just imagine how long it took them to come together and carry their friend and get to that house and break the roof. And then think about the next Saturday when they had to go to Builder's Warehouse or Build It or whatever it is and buy all the supplies and spend the day fixing the roof that they'd broken because Jeff was so cross with them for breaking his roof. Jeff in the back slack. He's interested. But um, <laughs> but anyway, they spent their time, they spent their money, they spent their energy, they spent their effort all for their friend because they thought it was worth it to help to bring them to Jesus. Now listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, I realize maybe this seems a little bit more in-house, but I am giving you a bit of a glimpse into one of the main purposes of the church, that we would help people to know him. But the rest of this passage is absolutely for all of us. And I want all of us just to think for a second why these men decided to do what they did. And I mean, there is the obvious answer that they wanted their friend to be healed. They wanted their friend's sins to be forgiven. But I think more my question is, why would they push through all of the obstacles they had to get to this point where their friend was healed? You know, I think of myself, you're tired, you're drained, you've made all of this effort, you get there, there's people all around, you can't get to Jesus. You might just say, guys, you know, we gave it our best shot, we tried There's no open door to you, some Christianese. Whatever you might say, let's just take them home. Maybe we'll try again another day. Why did they go to such effort and make such personal sacrifice to get their friend to him? I was wondering if maybe these friends of this man had encountered Jesus before. You know, we we don't know if they were paralytic themselves. Maybe they had been. 
Maybe Jesus had healed them before or something else. But maybe beyond that, maybe in a spiritual sense, they were remembering a time when a friend of theirs, whether it was a co-worker or a neighbor or a family member or a friend, carried them on a mat before they knew Jesus and lifted them and took them to him. Could have been an invitation to Alpha or to church or a conversation or an offer to pray for them or whatever it was. But I wonder if they were remembering in that moment, that time where they had someone who would do whatever it took to help them to meet Jesus and encounter and experience him. See, maybe they knew what Jesus could do for their friend because they'd already experienced it themselves. Their life had been changed by Jesus already, and they wanted their friend to see the same thing. So no matter how awkward or costly or uncomfortable or sacrificial this was going to be, they were going to do it because they knew that it was worth it. And our mission as a church, our vision as a church, is to know Jesus and make Jesus known. That's why we exist. And really, the reason we want to make Jesus known is because we know him. You know, We know his goodness. We know his faithfulness, as we sang about today. We know his love. We know his grace. We know his truth. And we've experienced it for ourselves. And we are desperate that other people would come to know it too. We want them to know the love we have found and the peace we have found and the life that we have found inside of him. Do you know Jesus today? I was looking through some of the quotes about Jesus that have impacted me the most in my life. And I want to read some of them to you today. Albert Einstein wrote, As a child I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. He's talking about Jesus. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. H.G. Wells, if you guys know the War of the Worlds, very interesting character. He said, I'm an historian, I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. St. Augustine is one of the best-known church fathers. He's actually, uh, yeah, he's an African man. He says, I have read in Plato and Cicero, the philosophers and the poets, sayings that are very wise and very beautiful, but I have never read in either of them. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. Jesus is beautiful, and he's powerful, and he's unique. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, um, his relative, He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in one moment, Jesus spoke of himself and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are the things that have been said about Jesus. And these are the things that Jesus has said about himself. More songs have been written about him. More paintings have been painted of him. More books have been written about him than any person that has ever lived in the history of of the world. Jesus is a unique and beautiful person. So we don't really know these four guys' backstory. We don't know why they were so tenacious in bringing their friend to Jesus. But I think they had encountered and experienced him before themselves. Maybe he had healed them or cast a demon out of them or performed a miracle for them. Or maybe they had experienced the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And for the first time in their life, for the first time in a long time, They had felt peace as their sins were forgiven and washed away. Or they'd experienced the love of God in their own hearts and his grace in their lives. 
or they'd felt free from things that had weighed them down, or they entered into the fullness of life that he offers to all of us. I think probably there's a number of people in this room who can say they've experienced a number of those things before. But the dust settles quite literally in that room after all of the commotion of the broken roof and everything else. And Jesus looks at this man, and he sees the faith of his friends, and he points at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this was quite a controversial thing. Jesus is saying he has authority and power to forgive sins. So there immediately would have been like a little bit of a hubbub in the room. People gossiping, did you hear what he said? You know what that means? Jesus is saying that he's God. And in the commotion and dust and debris and chaos of what's happening, Jesus forgives someone of their sins, but also reveals who he is. God, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah and Christ. Now listen, this man coming that day probably wasn't coming to have his sins forgiven. He was probably coming because he wanted to walk again. This man was desperate to get out of bed. He was desperate to walk. And Jesus sees that and he knows in a minute he's going to sort that out. He's going to heal this man. He'll give him back his legs. He'll enable him to walk again. Because Jesus is a healer. Jesus heals the sick and he still heals the sick today. And I want to encourage you with that. To pray for those who are sick and suffering and struggling I don't know why Jesus doesn't heal everyone, and I don't know why he doesn't heal always, but he does heal some people sometimes, and we want to trust him for that and believe him in faith to heal us and to heal our loved ones and to heal people in our lives from their sicknesses. But before Jesus heals the sick, he he goes beyond the obvious, he goes beyond the surface, he goes beyond the external to something deeper below the surface and more important. Jesus goes to the man's deepest and most important need, the forgiveness of his sins. Now I wanted to ask you, do you need your sins to be forgiven today? It's very easy for us to have on our minds, in the forefront of our thoughts, all of the things we want or need, you know, our struggles, our sufferings, our hopes, our wants, and to not think about the most important thing, which is the forgiveness of our sins and to be reconciled to God. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. And as we look at this passage today, I really want to remind all of us in the room of the importance of just that thing. If you're a Christian here today, then once you were the guy on the mat, once you were carried by someone else doing whatever it took to bring you to Jesus so that you could have your sins forgiven, maybe they invited you to Alpha or church, maybe they invited you to their home or had a conversation with you or prayed for you or whatever it is, but once you were that person who needed someone to do whatever it took to carry you on that mat to Jesus that you could meet with them. And this teaching is calling us to remember that we have been saved by Jesus and that we are called by Jesus to be the kind of people that will carry other people on mats to him. We are saved to save We're here to serve other people and help them. I think for us, Harbor City, as we go through the season of going through the Alpha course, really Alpha is just a mat for us to carry people to Jesus. Alpha is just a hole in the roof for us to lower people down to Jesus with. There's no magic in Alpha. This is not a silver bullet. There's no guarantees or anything like that. But this is an opportunity for us together to come together like the they, you know, like the four friends who carried that mat. And for us together to play a role. Your role might be to pray. might be to open your home. It might be to lead a group. 
might be to invite a couple of people. It might be to cook some meals or to pay for some meals. It might be to get there early to help set up or to leave late and to kind of clean up and wash all the dishes or to greet someone warmly at the door. But for all of us, we are like those four friends of Jesus that are called to play a role at this moment. And each of us have this opportunity to play a role together to help people to explore this Jesus, to explore what he says, to explore his power, to explore his truth and trust that actually some people would grow in their faith and others would begin to know him. For some of you here today, maybe this is the day. You're saying, actually, I need to be lowered down through that hole. I need to be forgiven. I need to be saved by Jesus. And maybe for others, you're saying, I actually really want to do this course because I want to explore him more. I've got lots of questions. I'm not sure. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. But I'm looking forward to doing this course to explore. Why don't you guys stand with me and we're going to pray together. Do you guys mind closing your eyes just to create some privacy just as we do pray, just to give people some space to respond to God? I think probably quite a few of us in this room today are like that man and have a need that we want to bring to Jesus. There's something in our lives that we need his help with. We can't do it on our own. And I just thought if that's you, maybe you can just put your hands out, just almost surrender to God, yield yourself to him, and just ask him to come and meet you in your situation and in your need because he is a God of the supernatural and a God who brings breakthrough and changes situations. And Lord, I ask you now for the hands that are raised, the the needs that people in this room have, that you would meet the needs, Lord, that you would answer prayers, personal prayers, deep prayers, real prayers. Jesus, we come to you and we come before you and we ask you to work a miracle like you have in Kiara Mungavin's life, like you did in the paralytic's life. I pray for miracles, I pray for provision, I pray for healings, and I pray for answered prayer in this room now. If today you realize you maybe don't need that kind of thing, but you need to be forgiven, you realize you're like that man, you need Jesus to say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven of you. Maybe you can raise your hands and just surrender to him today and almost pray a prayer in your own language saying, Jesus, save me, forgive me, Wash me clean. Maybe in your own words, you can tell Jesus that you need his salvation, you need his forgiveness, and that you want to follow him as your Lord. And lastly, if you need courage today, almost as we've spoken about this, bringing our friends to Jesus, maybe you think, Grant, I know the Holy Spirit has put someone on my heart, there's someone in my mind, I just don't have what it takes, I'm feeling nervous. Lord, I just ask you even now to put courage in us, to fill us with your spirit, to help us to not chicken out. Put power in us to be your witnesses, to be like those four men and to send the text or to make the call or to go around to their house and to invite someone that actually we could do our bit and bring them before you and we trust you to do the rest. I ask you, Holy Spirit, even now to fill us and empower us as a church for this week ahead, for the calls ahead, for the life ahead, and that we would be a church that knows you and makes you known. Amen.